One big shift that has taken place is the changes that have been brought up by changes in technology. Because I think the smartphone individualizes everyone. And because it allows you a personal connection with the outside world. Earlier, machines all had a specific purpose. Right? Every machine, a car has a specific role, an electric iron has a specific role, a fan has a... And this is, in some ways, a purpose-neutral machine, uh, a smartphone, because it fulfills many purposes. Uh, and so it, it suddenly is like this magic key to unlock so many things in the world, which gives you so many capabilities at the same time. Everybody, every individual uh, suddenly has those capabilities. Few people understand the dreams, aspirations, and frustrations of the Indian consumer better than my guest today. He's a columnist, media critic, and a best-selling author. His popular weekly column, City City Bang Bang, is published in the Times of India and is an amazing mirror into the thinking of the middle-class Indian consumer. If you have not read it, I would highly recommend you check it out as it's chock full of insights. He was previously president of McCann Ericsson, one of India's premier advertising agencies. He is now the managing director and CEO of Future Brands, a brand and consumer consultancy company I am absolutely delighted to welcome Santosh Desai to the Inner Real podcast. Welcome to the Inner Real podcast. On this show, I talk to unique individuals from all walks of life on their inner journeys, how they deal with issues of self-worth, find unique strengths, learn to manage external criticism, and overall finding happiness from within. These are stories that don't get written in newspapers, but the ones you'll find in personal journals. I'm your host, Bala Srinivasa. I've really enjoyed both your columns as well as your book is the nuanced things you notice. I read that one about uh, speed breakers and then I read about the one from Ondoni in terms of no rungs in the ladder. I'd just like to use that to go back. How much of your observations over the years have come from your own background? Where did you grow up? Was it like the middle class family you write about? Just love to hear a little bit about that. Strictly speaking, I think it must be said that when we talk about the middle class, that's not the truth. Everybody who calls themselves the middle class is actually not the middle class because this is a self-described label, the middle class, which may not respond to it in strictly arithmetic or statistical terms. Mm-hmm. But that being said, my father uh, was a civil engineer and he worked in a public sector company. And so I traveled across different parts of the country. I, I spent about five, six years in a small hamlet in, in Bengal. My hometown is Baroda and we were, a, again, a large kind of a Gujarati sort of a family, which where we were not, you know, and our annual visits were always back home. That was what we did. There was no question of going out on holidays to other places. <laughs> you always checked in with your headquarters every year. And so that is what we did. And it was both in terms of economically, a certain amount of tightness. And I think one of the essays in the book, I talk about the, the party of the full stomach. Yeah. Uh, so everything you need, you can get, but very little of what you desire, you, uh, you can buy. That kind of a, where you live month to month and the last week or 10 days are slightly white knuckled in terms of getting through it. Correct. But respect for education, value for education, the ability to have discussions and debates at home, a certain openness uh, of spirit, curiosity, and yet having traveled in and, and, and lived in a diverse kind of settings and contexts, not having 
friends for a very long period of time because you're always moving. Mm-hmm. So I think typical the the kind of a certain public sector slash army, there's a certain culture that grows up around that. And I think I was part of that kind of a middle class culture. Yeah, no, that's very true. Actually, I have a very similar background. My father was in the paper industry and we moved from Delhi to Calcutta to Kerala. And every time you landed in a new place, there was a little, you know, knot in your stomach, whether I'm going to fit or not fit. That was always there. What kind of uh, discussions would you have with your parents? What was your relationship? My mother was a much quieter person. She lost her father virtually when she was an infant. Mm. And uh, my grandmother... Uh, on the mother's side, she did not work. And so she came, grew up with relatives. And so she grew up, I think, with, with quite a... And so this whole new world of sudden freedom and moving away from Gujarat was, I think, a very big change for her. But I think she she adapted wonderfully well. But she was one of these artistic kind of people, but quiet and not particularly visible, but, but a very strong presence. My father was a very different person. He was very outgoing, somebody who took the initiative everywhere. Very curious mind. He used to also enjoy writing a little bit. And our relationship was unlike, I think, most middle class families where we, my brother and I were free to debate, discuss, challenge, shout at each other in terms of, in our arguments, we could be screaming at each other, much to the amazement of, I think, the people around us. But it was that kind of relationship. But but where, where the parent-child uh, kind of lines were very clear and you did not cross those lines. But in an argument, everything was fair. Uh, that's uh, wonderful. But when it came to personal life, he, he was the father and I was the son and he followed those uh, rules. But uh, when you were discussing a subject, of, then there were no boundaries, so to speak. That's really interesting. And so you ended up in IIM Ahmedabad. Uh, how much of it was what you wanted to do versus the parental expectations or expectations of people around you? None, actually. As it turned out, you know, my father was not... He actually really knew about the MBA. Really uh-huh. Okay. And he was not the kind of person who would ever push me in any direction or have you know any preference. So that was never uh, on, on the end. And as far as my other family went, actually Gujarat, uh, although we are not from a business community, most of Gujarat is and the IIM was meant nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was no parental uh, pressure at all. Mm-hmm. I was a generalist in a sense and I was not inclined to science in particularly in the way that it was taught. So I was mm-hmm. clear that I did not want to pursue those disciplines. And so I did commerce in school, which I thought was a dreary, drab subject. <laughs> the idea of sort of doing accounting was was not pretty interesting to me. Uh, and therefore, I did economics at my graduate level, which was a little more interesting. But the idea of the opportunity to do anything one wanted in the business area was something that I looked forward to. Mm. I must say that though there was no pressure from family whatsoever, I think there was a contextual pressure in the sense that if you were bright and you did well in school, there was a certain expectation which was an invisible, implicit expectation that you saw all around you. Yeah. Perhaps in a different time, I may not have done an MBA. I might have done something more creative or more aligned to the humanities. It's possible that I may have gone some other way, but the choice of the MBA was certainly not dictated. Mm. How did you then pick advertising? Was it more driven by hey, I need a good job, steady income, or did you start to have inklings of, this is what I'd like to do? I have never cared from the very beginning from the whole idea of a corporate culture, which I thought was very impersonal and in a way, it was uh, dehumanizing, which perhaps is a strong word, but certainly did not respect the individual as much as uh, I I would have wanted it to. And there was too much conformity, particularly at that time. I think things have changed over the years, but I think at that time, it just felt this assembly line where there was a certain, you know, definition of success. And it did not excite me, that world 
hyper competitive uh, which is what in an mba particularly the, the kind of more desired jobs at that at that time the desired jobs and marketing was still of interest but advertising was something which it was both creative and the allure of advertising which is i didn't really perhaps i am articulating it retrospectively was the fact that it allowed you to act like a student all your life it allowed you to not grow up uh, in a sense and the other jobs were all grown up jobs and i think that idea of, of being involved in something uh, creative something which was more loose and allowed for the individual to be present much more i think that was interesting to me and a lot of people do get into advertising but from whatever i could observe santosh you've picked a path that is much more around gaining insights and then trying to put that into work in campaigns or am i reading this the wrong way because i don't know too many other people who maybe grab what they see but then either go out and write about it and in your case i think you rose to become the president you're now running ceo right. of future brands at what stage did you figure you have a unique angle to what you're doing i took to advertising very naturally it's just one of those kind of things where there are some professions where you feel comfortable in your skin there you know what's happening and it doesn't take you long at all to catch up contribute and that's what happened to me that tragic so the first almost 6 uh, or 7 years of my advertising career where i think i was the conventional bright guy from a good school who understood creative and could work i was a, in a sense what i would call a more generic bright guy who was useful and who added value but i don't know whether there was that anything particularly fresh in my outlook which i brought to the, i i was curious i was thinking a lot i was jotting down notes of all kinds and it was a kind of beginning to take shape in my mind but it was mm-hmm. an organic process it was not something that i began with i always have had the the inclination to to invent rather than follow to me always i never read any marketing text in call that deadly boring kind of stuff over the text and i found the utterly pointless and there is a certain mba view of marketing which uh, at least then and even now actually to a large extent which is reductionist to break things into component parts and you solve that problem as if it were a production problem mm-hmm. which i think is absurd and there is a certain organic wholeness to greater processes which calls for a different way of thinking and i think i was developing that with the other kind of things i was reading i was having conversations and i think that was developing i think what changed things was when multinational sort of india opened up in 91 i think 85 is when the first flash of reform happened 91 and then there was a flood of these new companies into india who were asking questions or even if they were not asking questions they needed to ask questions about india mm-hmm. so suddenly here's a bunch of people who are representing india all these people who think they know the answers but they figure out pretty quickly that they don't that they're right. utterly clueless right this is a mental that was thrust upon particularly advertising agencies because you were dealing with a whole lot of these new clients and then you realize in a lot of ways that actually you are ill equipped to represent it here because while you are indian and and that you know gives you a certain amount of cultural familiarity your knowledge and background and exposure is so limited and i think which is the problem with and particularly people who are in advertising but part of such a minuscule minority routinely for instance people who talk about amdavad and lucknow is small town india and which you know is a very small reflection of right where you come from so if you're sitting in bombay and delhi it's impossible for you to imagine any other reality right so i think it became one of those things where i i started suddenly being able to reach back into my experiences and this idea that one could invent this so, so that moment uh, which is very interesting santosh because 
If I were to step back and just listen to what you're saying, it is what I would define as some level of self-awareness as you're moving around your career. We all reach that stage where we say, hey, do I even know what I'm talking about? Because I better find a different framework to put this. Is that what it was for you? Or was there a work-related deliverable that you simply couldn't meet with the existing knowledge? It was a more natural process. I remember one particular kind of a, a work-related thing where there was a shift. And that was, we were doing some work for Pepsi Foods. Mm. And, and they were launching a, a brand of namkeens. And I remember doing a note for Pepsi, which argued the Indian relationship with namkeens and the fact that in an economically scarce time, the one thing that I remember where there was never any shortage of was the namkeen. I remember delving into the cultural aspect of it and instantly there was a resonance because we were coming from a bedrock of shared experience. And I think that opened the door in my head to the fact that there was a certain whole area of this cultural mining and which already one had access to. Yeah. And, and I instinctively one was using it. And, and then I think the other realization that conventional research, you know, which asks people, which is essentially reportage based, which is you go and ask people and then and whether it is quantitative or qualitative, their opinions as they remember things. So you're asking right. them pointed questions about what you are interested in. They give you stuff and you make sense of it. I thought that was grossly inadequate because the real insight came from being able to look at behavior and decoding it rather yeah. than asking because most of us are, don't know why we do what we do. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, that's yeah. very well put. I, since we talked about behavior and even your earlier point and it sounded like a very, at some level, forward-thinking set of parents and father where there was a lot of room for debate at home. What do you make of the relationship with current parents, with the young Indian adult in, say, 20, 2021. A lot's changed, but it still remains the same. There are still expectations. There are report cards. There is, if you look at the success of Baiju's, it's basically parents flogging their kids to get there. But this younger generation is also different. And long-winded question, Santosh, but you wrote that book in 2010, a decade ago, right? Right. What's changed in India? Do you see a new generation behaving differently or parents trying to absorb how the world is changing around them and as a result have different behavior? It's an interesting question. I think uh, the, the big shift between 2010 and 2020 is the smartphone. Mm -hmm. At one level, it's just a technology, but I think it has cascading impacts of several kinds. And I think if there was one big shift that has taken place, particularly in the context of the question that you asked, I think it is the changes that have been brought up by changes in technology. Because I think the smartphone individualizes everyone. Oh. And because it allows you a personal connection with the outside world. Earlier, machines all had a specific purpose. Right? Every machine, a car has a specific role, an electric iron has a specific role, a fan has a... And this is, in some ways, a purpose-neutral machine, uh, a smartphone, because it fulfills many purposes. Uh, and so it, it suddenly is like this magic key to unlock so many things in the world, which gives you so many capabilities at the same time. Everybody, every individual... Uh, suddenly has those capabilities. At one level, the selfie culture or the idea is simply a manifestation of how intensely one becomes self-aware and, and of the fact that this is you. So identity becomes more fluid. It becomes more multiple. If you look at the way people describe themselves on Twitter, nobody describes themselves as a banker. Hello, you will say, I'm interested in this. I, I'm a foodie. You use at least seven, eight different kind of characterizations to describe who you are. So you are a junction of yep. so many different interests. Instead of being a point, you are a spectrum of possibilities. Right, right. right. Your online personae 
not just one, but they can be several. They can be very different from who you are in real life. So I think there's a generation. Uh, this is true for everybody who's on uh, on the internet and uses a smartphone, but certainly much more true of the younger right. generation. So there is much more sense of the individual. Yet at the same time, which is because it's the nature of digital, the digital world where you are individualized, but also much more connected yeah. simultaneously in a somewhat shallower way. Right. The point I'm making is that the smartphone has changed several things about us. What I think is particularly noteworthy in the context of the parent-child dynamic, at one level, there is a certain new imagination of the family as cheerleaders for every individual in the family. So in a sense, what happens is that you support. So if the younger daughter wants to pursue something, then everybody supports that. So there's one template of that kind. That's not a right. universal template, but that's a, that's a new template. But instead of the older generation being a resisting force, it in fact is an enabling force and everybody aligns with the need of every individual. You try and support that. So I think that's something that is interesting. But on the other hand, because there are so many opportunities and there is so much competition, there is also this great anxiety of not being left behind mm -hmm. and where parents get anxious from it. And also what has happened is that as the child grows up, the parents' ability to back themselves to know as to what to do Mm -hmm. has reduced dramatically. Yeah. In my time, the conventional parent would say, be a doctor or an engineer. If you're not smart enough, you make do with an MBA. If you're not smart enough, etc." So there was a clear <laughs> descending hierarchy of what was desirable. And everybody knew that. It did not require a genius. You could be a duffer yourself as a parent, but you knew what you wanted from your child. Today, how do you choose between stylist versus fashion designer versus blogger who makes money? For a parent to be able to give advice on that front is so difficult, right? Correct. But at a younger age, I think the sense of control is greater. So I find it interesting that as you grow older, the parental control and parental nudge in a particular direction, I think, if anything, has decreased. But it has transferred itself now to writing code at an early age, the white hat thing, to the Baijus, because there the anxiety has moved down. Yeah. Saying, okay, here, you know, so, let me, so it's let me, concentrated let me, in the earlier years, knowing well that it's likely to dilute going forward. And it, yeah. it, it's almost a roundabout way of the same influence, but it's kind of manifesting itself differently. What's been your experience as a parent? What's your relationship with your children? How open are they to your ideas? So I have two daughters and we've had one of those very open relationships where we are able to be completely frank and honest with each other on where they stand. And it's always been known that they will always do what they want to do eventually. Mm -hmm. That is never in doubt. Both as parents, both my wife and I may have a point of view and which we will express and we will discuss. Also, we don't have very set views and ideas on, on what they should be doing. Mm. So I think they have uh, carved out their own paths. So my older daughter, for instance, did a degree in communication, then worked for some time in, in qualitative research, decided to do an MBA, went to Spain, uh, Barcelona and did her MBA there. I was never too keen. I personally, I'm not a great fan of the MBA as a program. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what she wanted to do. And, and that made sense to her. She came back, worked as a design strategist for a while and now has started her own brand of apparel, which is sustainable, basic, essential wear. For the last one year, she launched virtually pretty much around the time of the lockdown. Mm -hmm. So she has had an interesting ride, but I think it's getting traction. She's doing well. My younger daughter did a degree in philosophy and that uh, did uh, a master's in anthropology. She went to Oxford to do that and she's now a journalist. 
She writes mm. features for the Times of India. So it's both have gone their own ways. Where they will come to rest, I don't know. But the, the relationship has always been one of where they discuss their plans, their ideas. For instance, when my older daughter wanted to start her own venture, I was the scared middle-class parent, although I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that those genes or whatever came back. And But she was sure and she knew what she wanted to do. So there was full support, but at the same time, yeah. there were reservations that I had expressed, which she heard and then disregarded. And, 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 <laughs> and let me ask you a, a related, it's kind of a counterintuitive point. I think, like you've said twice now that you don't really regard MBA to be that big. In today's era, I completely can take both sides of the argument, which is one, which school you go to doesn't matter as much as what you do down the road. But if you look at especially a place like India, there is no end to a pedigreed education. Mm -hmm. And people still want to graduate from an IIM, from an IIT, because the belief is, hey, that opens doors that could never have opened before, especially if you're not from, say, the metros or you're coming from some of the towns that you write about. What's been your thinking with the benefit of your own hindsight, right? How important in your mind is the educational degree? Because the folks listening to this are a lot of people in their 25s to 35s who are going through that same journey again, which is, hey, do I flog myself to go get a degree from a top school, spend a lot of money? Or uh, are there two or three other more important things I should be thinking about from a career perspective? There is no denying the fact that pedigree uh, education or degree, does it help open doors? Of course it does. I think it would be foolish to deny the fact that there is an advantage to that. But that advantage is diminished over time. There was a time when it was almost sacred that, you know, I can only hire from these top schools. And it was both a reflection on the company that we only do that as well as on the people who got selected to those companies. But with time, because particularly when you have a whole lot of new startups, now there is also equally the archetype of the high school dropout mm -hmm. startup billionaire. <laughs> you do have new imaginations that are also available, new kind of role models. I think things are changing. And yet, it would be foolish to deny that there is a certain advantage to getting a degree from a top school. So I'll just answer this in two different ways. One is that my objection to it Whatever, my issues with it is not, that's why I said the MBA program. Because I think that the value of an MBA degree is what it is. But the MBA program, I think what it does is that it, it what it does is restrict the modes of thinking. It, it pacifies, it hardens your arteries in, in some senses. Because you think of the world, A, as a knowable place, much more than what it is. You are not tuning into context, wider context beyond what your narrow goals are. So it's a very goal-based and I find that what the MBA does is that it people with many interests, with it can limit them. Mm -hmm. and, 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 it puts you, know, you in a box. Yeah, puts you in a box. And I think that to me is, and particularly now, I think in a world where there was a time when you look at the what you become from an MBA as a manager. There was a time when being a manager was a was a great idea. Today, I think a manager feels like a fairly pedestrian thing to be. You're many managing. That's a coping. You're yeah. rearranging things. Managing is a, the MBA at its, is essentially a resource allocation program. Yeah. And then implicitly, that means that you have a fixed horizon, a resource allocation when it is not a growing world. It is not a world where you can create. It's a world which is given to you and you manage versus creator. I think that is the difference. And I think the world of today values creators. It does not value uh, managers. And managers are what creators lead. 
Right. So I think that's the big difference. And people who haven't got a degree, I think the opportunity for them today is to is the fact that actually what the, what is valued is creator. Everybody who has not got a degree is not necessarily a creator in waiting. Mm -hmm. But but certainly a manager does not necessarily make you a creator either. So I think these are two different mindsets. And I think the opportunity today is the latter, which is mm. a, a creator's mindset. As you've gone through your career, Santosh, you started out talking about your father would write. Clearly, you guys read a lot. You discussed a lot. How have the non-formal education aspects of your career or even life, just in terms of the fact that how much has reading influenced you? How much has the fact that you're able to think out of the box because you were surrounded by certain types of people? How much have the external factors influenced who you have become for you over the years? I think a lot because I think certainly reading, uh, I think it is extremely valuable because what it does is that it opens your minds to different kinds of perspectives. It opens new doors uh, in the way you think. You suddenly are able to see new ways of thinking, new mm -hmm. ways of imagining things. So reading, I think, is critical. And it, it doesn't have to be. So today, I mean, for now, few years now, I find myself reading only nonfiction. Mm. Uh, but that was not the case. I've read all kinds of trash. James Hadley chases of the world when you grow mm. up and all of, <laughs> all of it is important. I think pulp is very important. Watching films and of all kinds. So it's a question of uh, having a lot of material. Essentially, any creative process eventually needs some material to to play around with, to throw against each other to see connections. And I think, so what reading does is that it gives you that material. So you talked about your personality a little bit. You were president at McCann. You're now running Future Brands. How has that worked for you, Santosh, in terms of putting together teams, leading teams? Are there, you've, you, you've developed a certain style where there is some expectation that the leader is somebody who's a little bit of a rah-rah person or somebody who's going to go out and have four beers with you and rally the troops. But yeah, everybody develops their own style. So what's been your approach to that? I don't think there's been any problem with having four beers with the team. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just say that I think anybody who's, you know, who happens to listen to it from my, any of the teams that they've been part of, I've been part of, I think will concur. I think quite, so I don't think that has been a problem. But the thing is that my approach has always been to build uh, a team basis. They're, they're very different people, but there's something, there's a common kind of a way of looking at the world or you may have different backgrounds, you may have different interests, but there is something that unifies the team. And, and a lot of the effort is in getting that kind of a wavelength where particularly because I think in consulting advertising, you, there is a certain point of view, essentially, that what you represent is a certain way of mm -hmm. solving a problem. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's what your brand is. And so therefore, it, it becomes important for that coherence of worldview. Uh, because I think once you get together and there is a certain, and I believe in a very relaxed work culture, I, I believe that people are adults. Everybody's an adult. Everybody understands responsibilities. And, and my job is certainly not to police anybody. But it is, if all of us are on the same wavelength, all of us want the same things, mm. I don't have to worry about any of the monitoring part of it. I think right. it's simply about, are all of us doing something new? Are all of us excited by the same things? I think those become questions. Because it's, then it's a process of discovery that everybody is on together. Right. Uh, and, and to me, the, the most important thing about the people who work in the team are people who have questions in their head, who are using the, the verb or whatever they do as ways of solving for mm. or answering questions that they have in their head. The questions could be beyond work. 
Mm-hmm. But unless you have questions in your head and, and you're seeking some sort of an answer, in this line of work, I don't see great value in that. That's very interesting. Now, speaking of questions in the head, Santosh, all of us go through a lot of our lives on the basis of some kind of external validation. When, Especially when we start out, we still don't know whether, hey, am I doing this okay? If I do this, can I be at least perceived as good as this other uh, woman right. or man, etc.? And there's this internal movie running that's very different from the outside view. What were some of your markers in this journey, what I will call a journey towards self-worth, where you stop thinking about, hey, what does somebody from the outside think versus how do I feel about what I'm doing and myself? And I've not met anybody who hasn't had some turmoil in this area and some people have dealt with it in their own way. So what's been your journey there? Yeah, so it's interesting that from the very outset, I've been somebody who's extremely hard on myself. I'm never satisfied. Even today, if I do a presentation, if I do a write an article, by the next morning, I'm already, I, for instance, never read my own stuff in print. <laughs> I always find something mm. wrong with it. In that sense, there is a lot of self-imposed kind of criticism. Where does that come from? Is that something that has built up over the years or is it something that works for you and it's healthy for you? Yes, I think for most part, I think it is healthy. There is a part where it is not. I'll come back to this and answer the other thing about validation. One of the things in advertising is that in a service industry, you actually are seeking validation all the time because you're presenting campaigns, you're pitching for stuff. So you're constantly in a state where you're proving uh, you know, mm-hmm. yourself. And I think therefore you get validation. So in that sense, and you also don't get validation. You get right. both sides. But if you get validation and if you get validation quickly or you get it more often than you don't, then I think that there's a fear of then drinking your own Kool-Aid and then being a victim of your own sort of success and it happens. And I think part of this thing of where it comes from, this idea of always being hard on oneself is, and it's always been very important for me not to be grounded always and Mm -hmm. to think that the kind of stuff that I write about or think about, unless one has that confidence that one is able to see things the way that others see it. Mm -hmm. And one is not only caught up in one's own kind of a imposed idea of the world. Mm-hmm. Unless one has that confidence that I'm actually what I'm saying I, I is something that I'm speaking for other people and I have the right to do so. Only if I've kept myself grounded enough and not uh, become too besotted with my own ideas. So unless I'm critiquing myself, mm-hmm. there is a danger of that. And I see enough people to their own myth. Sometimes it's very successful. It is not always about success or failure. It's about whether it works for you in the way you see yourself. And, and for me, that doesn't work. And so therefore, I think I find it important. And so therefore, sometimes that is counterproductive. Sometimes, particularly when you're later in life, when you're making a presentation, that is actually say, or talking to people that may not be consequential, but being very hard on yourself after that is is not particularly healthy because that will happen. Do you look back and feel that there are ways you could have dealt with circumstances differently? Like, uh, for example, we all go through positive and negative emotions and they can be anything. It can be at home, it can be at work, it can be jealousy, frustration, anger. And as you get older, you absorb and analyze it a little better. Uh, Have you found a process by which you manage negative emotions? Oh, yes and no again. It's an ongoing process. So I can't say that, you know, one has the answer there. I think in fact, with time, it has got more difficult. Uh, You're looking back much more. Mm -hmm. Till I think I was about 40. I never thought of the future. I exist in my mind. So 
if somebody asked me, what do you think uh, routine question five years from now, how do you see yourself? And I said, I don't see myself five years from now. <laughs> I mean, I, why would I see myself five years from now? It'll happen. What will happen will happen. I think it's only with time that the rear view mirror comes into play, I think, much yeah. more at yeah. a certain stage in life. So I think there, not that I have like some deep abiding regrets about saying I should have done, but there are some recognitions about priorities at a certain stage in life. Certainly, perhaps one was too caught up in work at a stage when... And, and it was advertising. No, it's not life and death. It's Yes, it was, of course, when I needed to be committed to what one was doing, but perhaps it wasn't quite as critical as that. And it took away from other aspects of life. Mm. So I think those realizations that perhaps a more fully rounded for life with other pursuits, other interests, uh, more time to sort of children. You have those kind of ideas on work. I think one of the realizations I have is that with time, the only things you value are not no, never value a presentation that you made, which was a huge success. I don't mm-hmm. even make those things. Yeah. The only thing you value are, are relations with people. Yeah. Actually, the only thing at least I find which is abiding is the the relationship you have with people. Everything else is transient. And it, like I said, it's advertised. It's brand. Right. Okay, so you help somebody, some brand for two years, increase their volume by 40%. Okay, that was nice. But in the overall scheme of things, what does that mean? The two years after that, they dipped 30%. That's not... No, that's brilliantly put, uh, Santosh. So let, let me just drill down on that just a little bit. So if you were the 25-year-old Santosh today, what are the two or three specific things you would do differently? Because this is that treadmill everybody is on generation after generation, right? So you've come out of a school or maybe you're four years into your work. Specifically, if you had to think back, you've talked about relationships, you've talked about it's advertising, not the end of the world. But it's often hard when you're in that lane to stop and make changes. So what when you look back in hindsight, and if you had the benefit of that hindsight to go back to that 28-year-old, 25-year-old Santosh Desai, what are the changes you would make? I think one, I would certainly devote more time to family as in the early stages because that's something that could have done much more of. Uh, it's not as if one was absent because that is not the case, but it, it was not. Back, I think there's a lot that I missed, which I shouldn't have missed. Mm. I think that certainly is one. The other is also in terms of people and particularly in the early years, once, I mean, my, I would say that relationship with people was, uh, a lot of those relationships endure and that's a different issue. But I think less interest in people in work. And I think I would not dramatically, but I would alter that balance. I think I would look at that balance between being interested in people and focusing on work, perhaps look at differently. Also, I am corrected a lot of those. You come with implicit biases mm. about the idea that educated people are somehow better or people who come from a certain background are so better. And these are hardwired biases. You may not think you have them. And it's only with time that you realize that, that every person, regardless of the background, has value. And it's so much easier to focus on that value rather than always finding a way of what is wrong with them or what is imperfect about them. And there's a certain stage in life where you try and build self-worth by knocking others and by saying that you are somehow brighter and, and better. And I think I would certainly tell myself at that age to be far more respectful and open to everybody and, and try and look at the value that everybody brings rather than try and prove that I, I am somehow better than them or smarter than them, which you one implicitly, I think, mm. goes through a certain phase when one is doing that. I'll ask a slightly different question there are, which I, for a guy who reads as much as you do, you've probably seen a, a few different surveys. This one's hit The Economist several times in terms of that happiness curve, right? So once you get into your late 40s, 
the good news for people like me is there is there are good days ahead best times of your life both in the context of either money or your understanding of how much money you actually need not as much as you thought you did experiences older kids i've always wondered is that 50 number is that something that's even true in the indian context i ask you that because you understand uh, the social fabric of india really well and in india you have such a close knit family right you almost have something going on if it's your kids earlier on it's your parents later on so w- what's been your experience with with that point but overall how have you thought about happiness is it more a state or it's something you're pursuing i think happiness is not something that you get because you pursue it mm-hmm. it is something that you often get because you don't pursue it but i think it is a state of balance i think that you reach it is a state of where there is a certain a, a state of contentment that you can feel where you are able to balance out the different aspects in your life where the push and pull between different aspects mm. is not as pronounced uh, as it is in, when you are not in that state right i think that sense of being on an even keel and without it being stagnating but being not having these competing parts of your life which you're always trying to allocate mm. you know time and uh, energy to and a certain effortless ease that you get into i think that's what is a state and i do think that it is a function of i think after 50 and i see a lot of my friends and my peers who are revealing different facets to themselves today they have new interests they have i think in terms of even as personality are more rounded more interest in mm. other people and i think that comes from this whole sense of having to prove yourself and having to get somewhere and you get somewhere and then you say okay i still have a lot of time left so there is a phase where there is a sense of emptiness where you say okay is this it because there is not much else to strive for there are some people who don't have that problem they keep that's their life right but there are a whole lot of others who i think come to a point and then find other ways of of filling in that emptiness and you know, most of it is made up of stuff that was always there mm. which you did not think mm. as being important enough and that to me when you in a sense fill into your own life and you sink back into that and see pleasure in that i think there is i think an experience of greater contentment and happiness one of the goals of this podcast is to benefit from the wisdom of those who have trekked the path we are on and gain insights that can help us with our own inner journeys what's the point in repeating a bunch of mistakes that we know does not lead to progress or happiness i'm sure each one of you derive their own value from this conversation for me a few things stood out if santosh could go back to his early career of all the things he would do he would focus a lot more on people relationships and valuing people irrespective of their backgrounds every person around us comes with their own strengths that can be encouraged and harnessed santosh talked about not needing to get ahead by putting someone else down which often happens when we try to win at any cost or make progress in our careers at the expense of someone else he emphasizes time with family and the need to strike a balance these are all nuggets that can dramatically enhance the quality of our personal and professional lives and set the foundation for long lasting personal progress Hope you enjoyed the episode. To make sure you don't miss a single episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. 
The team at Inner Real includes our producer Karthik from Design Your Thinking Labs, who is the technical whiz and the brains behind the operation. Shalini, who helps with marketing in her eye for detail. And I'm your host, Bala Srinivasa. Thank you for listening to this episode. Do join me on the Inner Real newsletter. All subscribers get a special invite to join our interviews in real time. Other goodies include courses and more. To sign up, go to innerreal.com slash join.